You're now listening to the Live Different Podcast with Matt Wilson. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's podcast. I'm your host, Matt Wilson, and today we have the honor of speaking with both Arthur Fromer and his daughter, Pauline, the publisher of Fromers.com, and of course, the new book, Fromer's Easy Guide to New York City 2019, but the Fromer's brand publishes now 110 books per year, starting off with the 1956 or 57 publication of Arthur's Europe on $5 a day. I'm not sure what year it was published. Maybe the two of you could tell me a little bit more. Well, there, there is an argument whether it came out first in 56 or 57. Obviously, it's no longer being published. We know very <laughs> few people of places in the world today where you can live on $5 a day, but that was possible in the 1950s. The U.S. dollar was so strong that I decided to write a book that told people that they were able to travel, that they could travel for far less money than the travel industry was indicating that you didn't need to go with the Stanley steamer and in first-class hotels and all the rest, that you could live modestly and yet well and have a wonderful experience on $5 per person per day. And, Dad, you know I always, I always contradict you. So we've been celebrating the year as 1957, and I think it's still possible to travel on $5 a day if you do it through the sharing economy, if you do things like globalfreeloaders.com and sleep on people's couches. I mean, it's really kind of a golden age for cheap travel. That is true. Yes. I I give in to that, Pauline. You're absolutely right. Uh, Okay, thank you. There are all sorts of organizations that will put you up for free in people's accommodations so that you don't even have an accommodation cost. That's pretty incredible in today's day and age, and we can we can get into that, of course. But I would love to start. What I'm sure everybody asks is, what was Europe in 1956 or 57 like? I know that you were <laughs> over there in the the U.S. Army, I believe. So I'd love to hear more about how you traveled in that style at that time. I traveled in that style because I was in the U.S. Army. I had no alternative but to live on a very cheap uh, budget. I was a PFC in the Army. I was stationed in Europe, much to my excitement. And I was always stunned to find that the other GIs in my barracks were too frightened to travel. They didn't know how you would do it. They didn't know what currency you would use. They didn't know where you would go to stay. And I first wrote a little book called The G.I.'s Guide to Traveling in Europe, which I wrote in the evening in the uh, the barracks where I was. I I was in an intelligence unit in Germany, in Berlin, and then in Oberammergau, Germany. And I wrote a little book called The G.I.'s Guide to Traveling in Europe. I self-published it. And to my amazement, it sold out the first day that it appeared on the bookshelves of the uh, Stars and Stripes system. So later, when I returned to New York City and began the practice of law, I am a lawyer by profession, I decided to try this again for uh, civilians. And I rewrote the GI's Guide, and I called it Europe on $5 a day. I published 5,000 copies of it, and again, the same phenomenon occurred. 
I found a, a, a distributor, a man who had a truck and who could bring these 5,000 copies to various bookstores in New York and in, in Connecticut and New Jersey. And again, the book went onto the shelves of it sold out the first afternoon. I had stumbled by chance upon the intense desire of Americans to see Europe. The people didn't go to Europe as of that time. They they regarded it as too difficult a task. They were told by the travel industry that Europe was a war-torn country and that you could only travel there reasonably for a lot of money. I knew that this was wrong, and I started a, a series of guidebooks that were initially all called uh, Europe on $5 a day, Mexico on $5 a day, Japan on $5 a day. And then later on, we changed it to $10 a day. <laughs> and, it came, and now we have phased out the dollar a day approach, but we still emphasize the need to travel modestly, that if you travel modestly, you travel better. And Pauline, maybe you can take it from there. Yeah. I mean, when you eat where the locals eat, uh, you often get better food. You have a more authentic experience. When you stay in modest accommodations, uh, usually people are down in the lobby because it's not so pleasant in the rooms. And so you get to meet other travelers and you spend your time on the streets rather than luxuriating in your hotel room. Both my dad and I still think that inexpensive travel usually beats expensive travel in terms of pleasure. That's just fascinating. Yes, please, Mr. Frommer, go on. Yeah, I was about to say that this is particularly the case with respect to that age range of American traveler who are called millennials. Now, I define a millennial as someone between the ages of 20 and 35. Matt, does that accord with how you regard it? Well, that is excellent news because I'm the owner of a tour operator called Under 30 Experiences, and we are open to people ages 21 to 35. I've heard between 1980 and 2000 dates of birth is about the rough estimate. 21 to 35. These are people who are in the prime of their lives. They do not have to rely on the uh, creature comforts that most older Americans regard as absolutely necessary. In particular, within just the last several weeks, the airlines have created new methods of crossing the Atlantic for very, very little money, provided that you could travel without a heavy suitcase, provided that you restricted your luggage to one small little bag that would fit into the overhead rack provided that you would take a sandwich with you onto the plane and not make use of a cooked meal prepared by the airline. And recently, some relatives of Pauline and myself, grandchildren of my daughters and others. Not grandchildren they, of your daughters, grandchildren of your sister. Grandchildren of my sister, yeah. of course. I don't have grandchildren. Uh, I'm too young for uh, that. Two of them recently flew round trip between New York and Newark. for New York uh, and Paris, Dad. Paris. Paris and Newark, I'm, I'm yeah. sorry, round trip across the Atlantic for $350 per person, all because they were willing to give up the creature comforts, to sit in fairly small chairs on, on board the plane, to give up a meal and the, and the like. $350 round trip between Europe and the United States. And this is 
something that is really realistically available to millennials, but is a much more difficult thing to press uh, for people who are much older. It's available for everybody. I mean, there's been a a real blossoming of of what we call upstart airline with names like uh, Norwegian and WOW and XL, the letters X and L. Uh, They're all going back and forth across the Atlantic incredibly cheaply. That's great. And I've actually flown all three across the Atlantic. Actually, I, I take that back. Wow. I've flown, I think, between Iceland and uh, Reykjavik in Paris, but I've flown XL. I believe it was Paris to Montreal. And I just recently flew Austin to Gatwick on Norwegian and had a fantastic experience. So I'm I'm glad that you pointed out that to all of our young listeners who are excited about the opportunities, but I can't help myself and ask Mr. Fromer how you got to Japan and on just $5 a day at that time. What was it like? Back in the late 1950s, the Japanese yen was exchanged for the U.S. dollar at 360 yen to the U.S. dollar. We said, we tend to forget how strong the U.S. dollar was in the early years. Based on that, it was not difficult at all to live in Japan on $5 a day. By $5, I, I mean restricting your expenditures to a room and three meals for $5 per person per day. And that usually required that you find a an accommodation that you could book for $3, including breakfast, and then you spent a dollar for lunch and a dollar for dinner. The uh, $5 never referred to the cost of sightseeing or of transportation. $5 was the uh, medium for the basic living room and three meals. And Dad, the, the, you often got letters. Dad's most common letter that he would get was five dollars. I did it for two fifty. People <laughs> felt the five dollars was extravagant at that, that time. Was especially the case from British students, young people, <laughs> and young British millennials who said that we did it for three dollars. The dollar was just so incredibly strong that it was easy to do it. And that, and that being that, said, the, the dollar is strong many places today. You look at the uh, currency of, of Argentina, it's dropped 47% in the last year. You look at going to Canada, it used to be that the Canadian loonie, which is their dollar, was at par with our dollar. Now it's a dollar thirty. so everything in Canada is 30% off. The dollar isn't quite as strong against the euro as it was a year or two ago, but it's still doing pretty well. It's still a very good time to travel. You're absolutely right, Pauline. That's fantastic. I'm so happy to hear that. And Mr. Frommer, do you have a maybe a favorite travel story from Japan when you went over there for the first time? I mean, really not too long after World War II. Well, it was a different experience than the experience we have now. In those days, the U.S. soldier, the veteran, was given privileges that today have disappeared. For example, in Europe, an American GI could travel on the railroad at a considerable discount off what civilians were paying. I remember that there were all sorts of accommodations that had had sprung up to accommodate veterans, military people and the like. They still exist today. You know, we talk about low-cost travel. One of the great developments in travel today is the explosion in the number 
of hostels, H-O-S-T-E-L-S, all over the world in every major city of size. There is today a hostel that no longer imposes an age limitation on your right to stay there. A, a person in their 60s can today stay in the hostel. And if you go into most hostels during the autumn and winter months when most young people are in school, you sometimes find that the predominant age of the people who stay there are elderly or, or let's say, middle-aged people. So there, it still is possible to bring your prices, your costs down considerably. In hostels all over the world, uh, you can generally stay at night for $25. And increasingly, increasingly, these hostels are installing rooms with private bath, private rooms not requiring that you stay in a double-decker cot in a, uh, in a large, larger room. Yes, yeah, there's a lot of hostels now that have double rooms where you can stay with your traveling companion for just a little more. And they're very nice. Some hostels have gotten very glamorous recently. It's actually quite a good way to travel. Sure, especially with the millennial trends and the fast internet connections and often now co-working spaces in these hostels where they're nothing like the you know, as they used to refer to them, refer to them as youth hostels or uh, something out of a scary movie. Really, <laughs> if you if you find a hostel with good ratings, it's usually pretty a pretty hip and cool place. And now you have to take the word youth out of the, out of the term yes. that you just used. Yeah, that is so interesting how far things have come. And again, Mr. Frommer, I can't I can't help myself but ask to hear a little bit more about some of your early travels. I know that you said Mexico, and you must have been traveling back to New York to practice law at this time and, and also publish your books. And so I'm curious where you went next. I know you published Europe and Mexico and Japan, as you said. Then That's right. where did your travels bring you? We broke the uh, $5 requirement with respect to the Caribbean. One of the earliest books that we published was called The Caribbean on $10 a day. But there were a great many people with places where it was still possible to live that cheaply. We had a book called New York on $5 a day for some time. Respect to Mexico, you mentioned Mexico. It was we hired other people in order to expand the number of guidebooks that we would be able to publish because doing such a guidebook required that you spend a minimum of six months in the country that was the subject of the guidebook. But a young author named John Wilcock discovered that it was possible to live for less than $5 a day in Mexico. Mexico's currency was just so weak with respect to the U.S. dollar and people had a wonderful time traveling and living inexpensively and, and modestly in, in a place like like Mexico. And after uh, writing the first edition of uh, Fromer's Mexico, or Mexico on $5 a day for us, John Wilcox went on to be one of the founding writers of the Village Voice. So what we've done and what we continue to do now, what we do more now is our guidebooks are written by local journalists. That's why I write Fromer's Easy Guide to New York City, because I live in New York. We feel you're going to get a richer 
treatment of the subject, because as my dad said, it takes six months or so to, to do a guidebook. So unlike other guidebook series that use what we call parachute artists, people who dive into a destination, look around and write it up, most of our guides are written by local journalists so that we can give people a, a richer picture of their options in the destination. Many of them are exactly the same people who rate restaurants and hotels for the local newspaper. They are experts in this type of, of travel and this type of expenditure, and we have maintained that rule all throughout our, our history of publishing guidebooks. We're, we're publishing, as you know, 110 guidebooks nowadays. They are available wherever books are sold, and they are written in large part by people who are themselves on the staffs of various newspapers where they are constantly rating hotels and rating uh, restaurant meals and the like. And therefore, you really get a, a very high-quality method of journalism and, for and the like farmer's guides. When, you, when yeah. you say that, you asked me about my experiences with writing. Some of them were more pedestrian than you might otherwise say. To me, the advantage of staying in a bed and breakfast house in a small pension in Europe or anywhere else around the world was often that you were in an accommodation that was operated by a family that lived in and operated the hotel. And many, many times in Europe, I would come downstairs for breakfast and I would have breakfast at the same table where the children of the owner were having breakfast on their way to school. And they would be discussing the events of the day and what they were looking forward to with their parents. And I would also be, hear political viewpoints and social viewpoints expressed by the family that both lived in and operated the pension or the, or the uh, bed and breakfast house. We called it then a bed and breakfast house, a pension. The major limitation to staying in a uh, accommodation like that was that many of them did not provide you with a private uh, bath attached to the hotel room where you were staying. And you went down the hall, and which was a custom in Europe at that time. Many people did not provide, uh, possess private baths. And I've often felt that people of millennial age have an easier time switching to that form of living than an older person would be. Many older travelers get, get fixed in their viewpoints. They must have a private bath. They must have an elevator. They, they must have all the items that cost of a hotel room to, to skyrocket. They have to have a beauty parlor in the lobby. They have to have a barber shop. All of these can be dispensed with, especially by people who are millennials. Again, I want to stress that a millennial is in the prime of life. And they can easily make the adjustments that permit them to enjoy this most magnificent of life's treasures, the ability to travel, the ability to, to go to other countries of the world, to view other viewpoints, other political viewpoints, other religions and the like, to open your mind to difference and thus to make of you a much more well-rounded and much more intelligent person. Wow. Well, thank you for that, Mr. Frommer. That is an amazing outlook for anybody. And I'm inspired to pack up my pack and get back out there. I wanted to ask you also about the amazing entrepreneurial journey that you both have, have been on. 
according to the Wikipedia page, as you started in 56 or 57, publishing your very first book, for 20 years, you ran the Fromer business before you sold to the publishing house of Simon & Schuster. And then, of course, some, some things have happened since then, which sound very exciting. But tell me about those 20 years, how you built from just a few books to a real travel guide book business. I started by doing it while still practicing law on the side. That's what you're able to do when you're a millennial. <laughs> I would work in my law firm until 10 o'clock at night and then go home and edit manuscripts that people had sent me who were writing guidebooks for us. I did it mainly myself. I, I would take the manuscripts to a printer to be set in type. They would uh, print it, and I would then take the printed books to a distributor. We were very fortunate at getting, at the very beginning, distributors who loved the ideas that we were proposing and, and who did such a wonderful job in getting them done. It, there was a time when Fromer travel guides accounted for close to a third of all the travel guides that were sold in the United States today. And we too, we still have a high incidence of the sale of our, of our books. But I did it by myself. I eventually had to retire from the practice of law. It just became too much to juggle both of them. There came a time also when I decided that I wanted to try my hand at broader forms of writing that I sold the books to Simon & Schuster and then, then to others. And they were in, in the hands of other people until recently, in April of uh, 2013, my daughter and I recovered the Fromer Travel Guides, and, and we once again own them completely. We are co-managing members of a corporation that owns the Fromer Travel Guides, and we're just thrilled to be doing this once again. Wow, that is an amazing story. I would love to ask what your mission is at this point. Travel has changed so much and you're still both incredibly passionate about travel. And it sounds like you, you really want to pay forward these experiences that you've been both so fortunate that we've all been so fortunate to be able to have. I'd love to talk here a little bit more about your vision. Sure. We live in an unfortunately xenophobic time. And so the, the bigger vision is uh, that when you get people out there into the world, seeing for themselves uh, that there are different ways of living, that other governments and other nations are generally our friends, are very welcoming and open, then, and that I hope this doesn't sound too idealistic, then you further the cause of world peace. And we are doing this by doubling down on journalism. Right now, you have a trend of a lot of people, you have a lot of sites with quote-unquote citizen journalists where you read user reviews. Sometimes those are fine, but a lot of times those sites are getting gamed. You know, you have teams of people working for Marriott, for Hyatt, for the little hotel around the corner, for other travel entities, writing fake reviews. They'd be crazy not to. In fact, 60 Minutes did a segment not long ago about a young man who makes a complete living writing fake reviews. 
and so just as with politics, just as with national affairs, we need good journalists to cover travel because sometimes what you read online, whether it be from a blogger who is getting paid to tout a destination or whether it be from a user-generated website, sometimes what you're reading isn't really impartial. And so at the Fromer Guides and at Fromers.com, we're doubling down on journalism. We're trying to keep journalists working and we're trying to keep journalistic methods at the forefront for travel reporting. We think it's important. It's our mission. Yes, I absolutely love the ideals. Uh, Mr. Fromer, anything you'd like to add? Dad, do you want to add anything? I thought Pauline Pauline said it very well. Travel is such a a fantastic activity. It's it's an opportunity to experience difference, to look at other people and how they regulate their lives, how they respond to the problems of living and what they do. We learn about people's religions and about their outlooks and about their political viewpoints. And that changes a person. You become, in my opinion, a much more intelligent person because you have traveled and because you have witnessed the way in which other human beings conduct their lives. And sometimes you take on certain attitudes and certain habits that improve your life in that manner. I I can't imagine a, a world without travel. And I'm just so thrilled that Pauline and I are able to engage in that activity and to try to keep the treatment of travel on a high level. That's great. And sending people where the locals go and supporting the local economy, not only by where you send people, but also with the journalists who live and work in these places. That's so important. And I wanted to ask maybe Pauline, if you could talk a little bit more about what you're doing with Fromers.com, because as we know, you don't see as many people walking around with the guidebooks like you did 10 or 20 years ago, but that content now, of course, is being sold online. Uh, so I'd love to hear about that. Sure. Well, along with the paper books, we have ebooks, which you can wander around with on your phone. As well, all of the guidebook content is on Fromers.com. So if you're looking for a great place to eat, if you're looking for a museum review, or better yet, if you don't know how to plan your time, if you're going to a new destination and you want to put together an itinerary that makes logical sense so that you're not running from one end of a city to the other, but seeing things in one area and then moving to another area. If you go to Fromers.com, we have all that kind of information. We also have a wonderful area called the forums where travelers help other travelers. People answer and ask questions. And we have a woman who lives in Italy. Her name is Mushroom. I don't know why. Uh, But, you know, for people who are traveling to Italy, if you go to the Fromers.com forums, you can post a a message and Mushroom answers, and then there's a guy named uh, Vinny, and then there's a couple of others who actually live in Italy and answer people's questions just for the fun of it. So we have a real community at Fromers.com. As well, we publish articles on trends. I'm working on an article right now about what the top trends are in travel. And it really is interesting. Things are going to shift in 2019. I've talked with people at some of the major search engine sites, 
And the airlines have been working for several years to come up with a new system, an artificial intelligence system, which looks at what they know about the passengers and then offers them airfares based on the profile that they've concocted of that passenger or would-be passenger. So say you've traveled for business in the past and you've paid more to board early or check a bag. When you go and search online, and you could be searching for, say, Chicago to Washington, D.C., at the same nanosecond as five other people are searching for that, in 2019, the results of your search are going to be totally different than the other person who's searching at the same nanosecond because your profile is going to be different. It's going to become much more complex and convoluted and annoying. We're always at Frommers.com trying to come up with the advice for this rapidly changing industry. So the advice for that is when you search for an airfare starting very soon, try and do it on a server that's not your own. Try and do it without identifying who you are so you can get a baseline of what the actual fares can be. Because if you've ever spent more on travel, they're going to assume you want to spend more and keep hitting you with those prices. Well, that's an Excellent travel hack, yes. What Pauline has just referred to is our website. The website that we publish on a daily basis is called fromers.com. It contains also editorials that Pauline and I and other members of our staff constantly bring judgment to bear on different issues within travel, political issues, lifestyle issues, uh, a lot of people, there are tens, uh, hundreds of thousands of people who now go to fromers.com to hear what we have to say about things, about events in the world of travel. And many times I am so proud of the fact that we are all alone in journalism, in being antagonistic towards some trends that we regard <laughs> as negative trends. But every day... You can go to Fromers.com and there will be a blog by Arthur Fromer or by Pauline Fromer stating our unvarnished opinions about events in the world of travel. We're very proud of our book, of our magazine, uh, our newspaper, our, our email newspaper, which is a website. Yeah, because I mean, our only client are our readers. Unlike many other travel journalism sites where it's really reporting for the industry and what's good for the industry, we're really trying to make sure that travelers get a fair shake. And that's that's what informs all of our articles on Fromers.com. That's great. Well, thank you for sticking up for uh, the little traveler in this complex world of corporations and, yeah, all the the travel search engines and all these things out there. I wanted to ask you both before we wrap up about places that you absolutely love. And uh, I know, Pauline, that you are expert in New York City. So I was going to ask you for a recommendation in New York. And then, Mr. Fromer, I, I would toss it back to you after Pauline answers. And uh, if you could think of a place that you absolutely love in the world that our young people should go out and see, it can be as specific as you would like from a 
pub, to a museum, to some type of experience, I think it would be a nice way to end. But okay. Pauline, what would you have for, for someone who wanted to visit New York City? There's a really cool night spot that has opened up in on the Lower East Side of, of New York City. It's called Caveat. Uh, I think you can find it at caveat.nyc online. And what I like about it is they're trying to, what they call themselves is intelligent nightlife. So for example, on Sunday night, I think I'm going to go see their show. They're having a show that's going to turn into a podcast. Uh, Wyatt Sinek, uh, formerly of The Daily Show, is, is going to be the host. And he is going to be interviewing, along with several other comedians, a very, very distinguished scientist, but they won't know what the scientist is studying. And so they're going to trying to figure out without asking the scientists directly what he's studying. And that's what the show and podcast is. It's this great underground night spot called Caveat where they often have these really intellectually challenging, fun, always funny shows. And I'm I'm hoping it'll be the next trend in nightlife. I'm usually the oldest person there. It's usually just people in their 20s and 30s. But it's such a great new development. I've never been to a night spot like it where they where they address issues of science and history, but always in a hilarious way and with alcohol. So it's a lot of fun. If you're going to New York, you have to go to Caveat. Wow, Pauline, that was one of the most creative answers I've heard. <laughs> and I used to live at... Canal and, and Baxter, so I would have loved to walk over there and investigate what a hotbed of, of creativity down there. And uh, yeah, I can see why you, you wrote the book on New York. So thank you for that. And Mr. Farmer, where would you send people? My own favorite destination in all the world, and I'm going to disappoint you. It's not an exotic place. It's a city of which you've always heard, but the city to which I can return over and over and over again is the capital of France, the city of, of Paris. I regard Paris as leading the world in every conceivable uh, category of activity, in cuisine, in art, in music, in theater, in political discourse. I find that Paris is a city that opens your mind. And Paris today has an institution that hasn't been discovered by a great many people, but it should be discovered. They are conversation pits where the Parisians invite English-speaking people to come into a particular uh, hall or apartment or a home of some sort and simply to discuss the issues of the day with English-speaking Parisians. It used to be years ago that nobody in France spoke English. Today, almost all of them speak English, and there is this unusual opportunity to hear from them what they think about the United States, what they like, and what they dislike. And if you go into the latest edition of our of our guidebook to Paris, uh, you will find the details of where you go in order to enjoy all this. But in Paris, in my opinion, in, in art, in music, in literature, in political discourse, in every single major area of, of interest, Paris leads the lot. And it is a city that never grows uh, dull in your memory. It is a city of 
where there's liveliness in the air, where people are are interested in talking, where they give you so much of themselves that make the activity much more more interesting than it normally is. So my uh, favorite place in all the world is not Patagonia, <laughs> it isn't <laughs> Sri Lanka, it's, it's not some unusual, it's not Lebanon or Jordan, it's the city of Paris, the city of light, to which I try to return as, as often as I am able to do so. I am also a, a born and bred New Yorker. I love New York City, but I'm saying that independent of New York City, I am a person who just has fallen in love with the city of Paris. Well, that also is another amazing creative answer. And uh, Pauline, I can certainly see where you get your intellect from and (laughs) your hunger to go out and discover new things where if you're just searching out there for, oh, top five things to do in whatever major city you're in, you're just not going to get this information as if you you asked a local or an expert. So thank you for that. And I wanted to ask if there was anywhere where people could reach out to either of you on social media. Of course, Fromers.com, you have the new editions of all of your books coming out this fall, or they are out, which is also amazing. And Pauline, again, Frommer's Easy Guide to New York City 2019. Where else can people find you online? Well, uh, you can find us under the word Frommer's, F-R-O-M-M-E-R-S, on Facebook, on Pinterest, on Instagram, on Twitter. We're in all those places. And uh, if you come to Frommer's.com, there's also links where you can email us directly. Excellent. Well, thank you very much again for being with us today. I really appreciate your time and thank you for building such an iconic brand. Thank you. We appreciate it. Thank you for having us, Matt. That's very nice of you. Thank you.